0: The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. It should go without saying, but let it be said, absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. However, the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney, policy professional, or strategic advisor for their needs. If you're interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes! Welcome to another episode of the If Then podcast. I am your host, David McKenna Adams. It is with great pleasure I'm welcoming to the show the newest product counsel at Lithic, the credit card issuing platform, former associate general counsel at Bluevine, a small and medium business neobank, former associate at Arnold and Porter, and before that, Cole, Freeman, and Mallon, Fintech Law TLDR newsletter, the author of the Fintech Law TLDR newsletter, and the guy who personally pushed me out of the legal tech newsletter writing game, Reginald C. Young, lawyer, content creator, Reggie. Welcome
1: to the show. Excited to be here. That is uh, quite quite an intro. I'll try and live up to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You've had a very interesting career, and I will be very curious to hear about um, your progression. If Then is a podcast around career intentionality, product strategy, but maybe we can start at the beginning, how and
1: why you became a lawyer and, and how you got your first job as a lawyer. Yeah, for sure. So I'm Reggie, living in San Francisco, currently product counsel lithic. Became a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer. And like, you know, when your dad's a lawyer, it's just like a, an obvious career path and uh, easy one, you know. So it was kind of pre-law and undergrad. Took like a year off in between, but took the LSAT in that time. and was pretty set on law school. So I went to UCLA, thinking I'd do entertainment law. And then met all these entertainment attorneys who were like, no, it's not fun after a certain age. <laughs> so kind of wised up and realized like. Well, it seems like those like business law attorneys seem to have lots of fun. to so switch to uh, that track. I love this. I love this because
0: you've already like sparked so many things in me. First off, both of my parents are accountants, and I was never going to become an accountant. So <laughs> I don't. I don't. There's a divergence there. Yep. Um. And I think I think I became a lawyer just because I really liked the LSAT. But that's a whole different <laughs> podcast. But it's funny you mentioned the entertainment law thing because I've known a few entertainment lawyers, and it really is. At Latham, we had this Shakira case. People were always talking about. There was a Shakira case, and yep. the associate was in my class who was working on it. And she was just like, "I mean, it's just like doing contracts. Like, <laughs> yep. I didn't meet Shakira, um, but uh, yeah. So you know, maybe you made the right decision. But sorry, please continue.
1: No, oh, yeah, I uh, finished up law school at UCLA and was like at the time actually kind of considering starting a firm with two uh, buddies gra- after graduation, but was keeping an eye on the uh, job listings and saw a super interesting one for a firm that focused on crypto investment funds. So decided to kind of do like the more traditional law firm after graduation route, which yeah, led me to, to my first job. Crypto investments and what year is this? Uh, it would been 2017. So it, yeah. was like, it was like, I paid a few months of rent 3L with like Bitcoin because that was when it started going up. <laughs> And it was like, I kind of graduated and joined that firm, like right in the middle of when it was going up. So it was interesting. Like I was there, I was there at the time that the SEC was sending like cease and desist about ICOs. And we were working with like some of the bigger investment funds in the space, mainly like hedge funds, but they were starting to do like cross hedge VC fund type stuff at the time. And then like, yeah, it all, that bubble popped, everything crashed, like work dried up a little bit. So it was, it was interesting. I got to see like the front and the back half of a bubble in crypto and kind of, yeah, you know, see some of the like SEC scrutiny around a new asset class. So fun times. Those crypto cycles, they uh, they move fast. They enable yep. you to see
0: the uh, the full like life cycle in a very accelerated yep. manner. It reminds me of the plot of a very bad M Night Shyamalan movie called Old. Don't watch it, but <laughs> that's that's kind Noted. Of basically the plot. Anyway, I mean, did you? Was it the bubble that? Did you leave that firm shortly thereafter? That or kind of how did that go?
1: Yeah, it's kind of two things. One was a little bit of the bubble, things slowing down, as well as just like that that little voice that's like, huh, maybe I should try that big law thing, which I know a few of my law school friends who did like in-house or smaller firms also had like that same bug of, oh, I got to try it out, see if it's all cracked up to be. So I started kind of looking for, for big law firm jobs to try that out. So then I ended up joining Arnold & Porter from there, similar doing similar work like investment management, kind of working with... A little hedge funds, like real estate investment funds, um, occasional VC fund. Okay. So you had
0: kind of what I would call two very different stops, but you were doing similar work, perhaps just in different industries. And so at your first firm, this was a crypto focused investment practice. And that's traditional work, but in a super untraditional field. And you know, myself, I, I currently work in crypto, but working in crypto in twenty seventeen would have seemed super high risk at the time to me. And you did that right out of law school, which is pretty interesting. And you mentioned thinking about starting your own firm also right out of law school. So, you know, you went to a top law school, the type of law school where a lot of people go to big law right after, like, why weren't you thinking about big law right from the start getting those paychecks? Like most people do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think part of it was, I probably had a chip on my shoulder that was like, no, I'm like, just going to skip that entirely. And then graduated and was like, I don't know, maybe nice to pay off a little debt. But yeah. <laughs> I think I think that kind of like brought me around seeing like other friends. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag. Like you get some friends who say like, oh, I'm like not going to stay in big law and they do and they absolutely love it. You get some who like think it's going to be their life thing and they absolutely hate it. And so like there was that little voice in my head too that like I knew at graduation that I like, I kind of shot myself in the foot 3L by taking a bunch of MBA classes. And so that kind of opened me up more towards like Business paths and like one of those was like entrepreneurship and so I was like okay maybe I'll start a firm because that seems like way more interesting, but it's still I still have this like lingering, like I don't know maybe I should try this thing that that everyone does because maybe I'll or that not that everyone but a good number of folks do because maybe it's actually like something that that will make me happy and that I enjoy. Spoiler alert that was not the case and my initial <laughs> instinct was right. So let's talk about
0: Arnold and Porter, a more traditional firm, but you're still doing similar type of work related to investments so what what was it about that type of work that interested you you know how did that kind of connect with wh- whatever thoughts you had coming out of law school and just the the type of work you're doing at the firm
1: yeah i think uh... We kind of already hit on like, I had a weird start where I went to this like higher risk firm, but it was also weird because it was like a specialized area starting out. Like it wasn't this, you go and you do general corporate, it was like, no, you're going to be an investment management lawyer straight out. And so that made laterally easier if I wanted to stay with an investment management. Investment management is an issue area because it's basically like you're working with these funds who are managing massive amounts of money and they can move mountains. And so it's kind of like interesting to see for me, the backside of how all that worked and like who these players are, like how is the stuff regulated? That was just generally interesting to me. I grew up with not much understanding of the finance industry. It's like most of learning about fintech has been new and self-taught. And that was just like investment management was a really good way to kind of learn like the basics of securities regs. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was your takeaway? You were at Arnold &
0: Porter for a couple of years. You were at previous firm for a couple of years like what was your takeaway from having worked in firms from having worked in big law having worked in investments like what did you learn about yourself about your relationship with the law
1: yeah i think the first firm where i worked with crypto funds to me like just was so much more fun than kind of the more standard institutionalized stuff because when you go at a big firm it's like you're dealing with these like bigger, more risk-averse fund managers who are who are doing like more traditional stuff. And so, like a big part of investment funds is an example. A big part is these like disclosures where you disclose all the risks that might happen. So you don't get sued by investors if the fund turns out poorly. And if you're if you're dealing with like traditional funds, it's just like copy, paste, copy, paste, like these risk disclosures, they're just like these big paragraphs. Like they've been around, listen around for decades and they're just copying and pasted. But working at the crypto firm is like when we started, like proof of stake wasn't a thing yet. It was all like proof of work and proof of stake suddenly came up as something that our fund managers wanted to invest in. It was like, oh crap, we have to like draft a risk disclosure from scratch to kind of cover this new risk. And so it was much more like creative first principles lawyering, which I really liked. It was a lot more fun. I think that kind of yeah pushed me more towards like the startup in-house field because I wanted to work more in that creative lawyering where you're forced to think from first principles a lot, issue spot in an area that hasn't been issue spotted much.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's something that can really drive certain people, the aspects of doing something new where there is not reams and reams of precedent. And you mentioned a couple of things that you know folks may not know exactly what they are. Proof of work is a consensus mechanism most notably known in Bitcoin. It's how Bitcoin miners all agree on transactions and what transactions are. Proof of stake is a newer consensus mechanism that depends on how much value of the given cryptocurrency the validators of the chain hold to confirm the transactions in the chain. We can go deeper on that, uh, likely at at another podcast. But kind of the point is the proof of stake was a much newer consensus mechanism that didn't really have precedent. It was a new creation. And- when you mentioned kind of the disclosures and things that you were doing, correct me if I'm not recapping this correctly, but you were a a legal advisor to investors like hedge funds and other institutional investors. And when they would want to make purchases in the uh, kind of markets for their for their investors or LPs or whoever, there were all these documents that needed to be drafted. And certain disclosures of the risks. this is, this is based in regulation and, and US. securities laws. You're the person that makes sure these things are all buttoned up, tidied up, and no one uh, hopefully goes to prison or gets sent to
1: mild partners uh, who did securities litigation. Um, <laughs> is, is, is that all generally accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. We were like primarily focused on when fund managers wanted to set up funds or like you know establish their second or third fund in a series we kind of make sure that they were set up correctly. And like, what's your strategy going to be? What do we need to incorporate in your docs to account for that, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think that was was a pretty good summary.
0: Wonderful. All right. I nailed it. Um, (laughs) So let's transition away from the wonderful world of big law. What led you to leave on an importer and, and go in house and like, how did you do it?
1: Yeah, I think, I kind of quickly realized that that idea of like maybe big law, something I should do was like not a good idea. And so early on, I was like, okay, this isn't for me. Like I'm somebody who by default will tend to move a little faster and like more creative working as, as a junior. So, so you tend not to get that in, in bigger law firms. And it had like some other personal stuff too, that just kind of like forced me to do it to, to try and move more quickly. So ended up whenever I talked to big law folks who, are, who want to go in-house. I was giving advice, like think about your experience and like how you can craft it in a way that like kind of zoom out your skills. And so like the way I looked at it was, okay, there's a couple of paths I can go. FinTech was one of them. And that's because like, well, I've worked with investment funds, which is like securities regulation, which is like financial regulation. So I can apply to these co- these in house companies and be like, I have experience with financial regulation, even though it's like totally different kind of financial regulation. It right. was like, it's all on how you frame it. So I'd kind of like, when I was trying to go in-house, I had figured out a few kind of narratives like that of like, how can I take the experience I have and like craft it into these like two or three playbooks for various places that I'm applying to. And FinTech was definitely high in my list. was like interviewing a few places and and in Bluebind panned out, really liked everyone I'd interviewed with there. And There's a few key key questions I like asking when I interview, chief among them is, let's assume your company blows up in a year and like, you can't get funding and it's completely like done. You can't, like your company's just done. Like what are the top reasons that happens? To me, it's like the, the quintessential lawyer question of like being the pessimist <laughs> to see if how could everything go wrong, <laughs> right? Like to like talk to some of their their lead folks and just see if they're thinking about their downside risk. Yeah, like there there are a few questions like that. I I really like the answers I got at Bluevine. Joined them about I, mean, I started there like a week and a half before quarantine hit in San Francisco. So it was like, I think I like went in-house at the peak of the job market before COVID. Like I think if I waited <laughs> yes. two weeks longer, like would not have been able to make the switch. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, it just worked out.
0: So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned targeting fintech. How did you know enough to say this is a sector that I'm interested in working in? Like what about fintech attracted you?
1: Yeah, I think two things. One was having worked at a crypto firm made me at least somewhat aware of it. And so I'd kind of kept an eye on the headlines related to FinTech. And the other being that point of like, I had some experience that made it easy for me to kind of wedge myself in, as well as like just from reading the headlines, being able to see that, like, okay, there's some established players who've been around, but there's also so much that is just starting now. It kind of felt like, okay, I can join FinTech now. It's not going to be too late. And there's going to be a lot of interesting opportunities coming in the next like decade for it. So yeah you
0: had you had this experience in a super up and coming volatile industry like crypto and if we're talking early 2020 now fintech is very much in its moment really fundraising is really starting to pick up you you kept up with kind of news around things in tech and you wanted to join something that you felt was growing but perhaps a little bit more established than say the 2017 version of crypto I'm I'm curious about you. You had an in with the industry with your background. Um, what about the the like role itself at Bluevine? Uh, you know how what what was that role, and and how were you able to craft that narrative around your skills for that specifically?
1: Yep. Yeah, this is a great question because I had a kind of quintessential story that you hear of like. I was hired for one thing and then ended up wearing eighteen different <laughs> hats and was able to pick the things I wanted. i to. have I have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i I started I was hired to do capital markets, which for like quick context is, Bluevine is primarily online lending and banking for small businesses. And if you're a fintech lender, you need capital markets on the back end because you're not lending out like your VC money. You're instead lending out money that you yourself are borrowing from like bigger investors, private equity funds and whatnot. And so there's a lot of work in the back end that's somewhat similar to investment fund stuff. There's going to be, if you're doing a securities offering, there's going to be like some, or a securitization, there's going to be like some risk factors that are similar to the risk factors we were just talking about, as well as just like some other kind of principles that translate easily. So that was an easy wedge in. Maybe... Maybe we can talk about uh, this and unpack some of those
0: concepts. So, at least, is from my understanding, if you're a bank, particularly a lending bank like Bluevine, the way that you make money is by having interest on the loans that you make, and uh, the cost of capital that how you acquire the capital it, uh, to you is that interest that you're paying on that is less than the interest that you are uh, that you are charging for the loans. And on top of that, you when you do issue loans you securitize those loans in that you allow for others to invest in the loans that you have made and that does i don't know something uh you can probably complete you can probably complete that <laughs> yeah
1: that no that's that's one way to do it i we never actually did a securitization on was at bluevine we were about to and then COVID hit and we started rethinking those plans a little bit but it's it's kind of similar principle of like you have these lenders in the back end and you're right that like instead of like selling more towards the market, you're selling to like some focused kind of investment funds that are providing you the capital that you then lend out. And you're, you're totally right. Like they provide you capital at a lower rate than you were lending it out. And that margin is is where you make your money. Got it. Got it. Okay. So uh, I got a couple of questions
0: about blue blue vine itself. And you started in capital markets, the pandemic hit. When I think of blue vine, I seem to recall a lot of stories around. PPP loans, and really a lot of stories just in general around how neo banks and um, kind of newer technology-focused banks were really the ones that were able to issue these to businesses much faster than your uh, JPMorgan Chase's and their ilk. Did, was that something that Bluevine really excelled at? Was that something that you hopped in to help with? What was that like joining the company right at that period of time?
1: Yeah, Bluevine was definitely part of the the Paycheck Protection Program, billions, billions in in stimulus money assistance to small businesses. And so I mean, I join like COVID hits, like all of a sudden they stop lending because the markets are just going crazy. It's becomes this question of like, oh God, do I have a job next month? No one really knows. But then this incredible program, there's I know there's like some scrutiny of the program now, which should, totally should be done. And it's a lot of taxpayer money, but like, I think overall I was really impressed with the program, the PPP program that was put in. And it's basically for folks who don't know, it's, it's kind of like you get a loan and then assuming you, you apply for forgiveness later for your business. And if you get approved for forgiveness, you don't have to pay it back. And forgiveness is like a fairly straightforward process where you could just show that like, you know, you spent it primarily on employee wages and, and, rents for your business, those sorts of things. Um, so there's a program meant to kind of help Main Street more than Wall Street in contrast to the last big economic downturn. Mm-hmm. So Bluevine basically was well-situated for that as an online lender. This program opened up to private companies like Bluevine that were partnered with banks or applied for, applied for licenses on their own. Um, and so Bluevine kind of pivoted like crazy, crazy days, crazy nights, crazy weekends. Regulations were rolling out on like Friday at 5 p.m., the Small Business Administration would drop a regulation. We'd have to scramble because on Monday people would be calling us saying, "Like, hey, there's this new thing. I heard it's out." It's like, "Yeah, we haven't built that yet. Stay tuned." Like tomorrow, or <laughs> people are working on it all night. Yeah. Uh, so definitely some crazy times, but it was it was a really good learning experience because it was kind of like the fintech product cycle condensed. It was like you have to build this thing, a ton of regulations to navigate. You have a bank partner relationship to manage, like all these aspects that are kind of. Core to being in-house fintech counsel, that def- definitely came into play. Yeah, you got a condensed product cycle after you had the condensed bubble in crypto.
0: <laughs> like you get to, you know, you get to keep seeing these things happen really quickly. I think you know that that was one of those things where it's really a testament to having technology that's flexible, having um, having engineers and product people that can ship code quickly. These things aren't possible with traditional bank cores and uh, being an online lender, having the sponsored bank model, having APIs, having lawyers who can understand technology and interpret regulations quickly um, when you're getting them in on a Friday night and pushing out loans on Monday and people are asking for them is like a, a, a pretty big, like I think feather in the cap of FinTech in general. Um, and I, and that was certainly a story at the time. And, you know, you mentioned the program getting scrutiny. Now, how many grifters did you personally approve loans for?
1: <laughs> I plead the fifth. No, uh, no, I, I, like there, yeah, I know there's some scrutiny now. It's like, I think totally justify this, like a lot of taxpayer money, but there's also like, to your point of like private tech companies kind of stepped in. Like there's a ton of research, Sabrina Howell at NYU is kind of like the main, uh, main Person doing the research. There's there's several folks doing it now, though that are kind of focused on like big banks compared to fintech banks. And there's a ton showing that like fintech lenders disproportionately helped like minority and lower income businesses that needed it the most. Um, whereas like you were saying, like some of the bigger the bigger brand named banks were just kind of you know only providing these PPP loans to their existing customers. So there's a lot to be said about like a lot, a lot of good stuff that came out of that project. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: so I want to talk about just your transition to being in house. You know, all of that immediate chaos aside, you were at Blue Vine for, um, if that was March 2020, you were there for almost two years. How did, how did being an in house counsel at an online lender suit you in comparison to your previous roles? Um, and and how, how was that different?
1: uh it suited me so much better like i think the the chaos of having to wear so many hats and uh, you talk to any house lawyer and like a huge part of the job is being a lawyer but also doing a ton of other non-lawyer roles not just like wearing various lawyer hats but also like occasionally helping out with like operations or product work like there were times i like helped out with product specs like it's just a thing that happens and it makes it a lot more fun to me because you get to see more of the business and you get to help out more um i don't know it thinking back to firms, firms feel kind of like siloed. Like you may have a small group versus working at a tech company. It's like, oh, today, like this meeting is with our partnerships team. And this meeting is with our support team. And this meeting is with our product. Like you're just working so cross-functionally that it feels like you're part of a much bigger group working towards the same goal. That just makes a lot more fun. Uh, And so that was great. And like the whole chaos of being at a startup um, and Bluevine for context is a late stage startup. Like their last round was a Series F. So like more established. Overall, like loved it. A lot more creative problem solving, a lot more like first principles thinking and like constant learning because you're in a space where you're doing new things all the time.
0: Constant learning, thinking, kind of working with non-lawyers, driving all towards the same goal. These are common themes you'll hear from, like you mentioned, a lot of in-house lawyers. How did you find yourself working with outside counsel having been there before and, and leveraging them for your role?
1: Yeah, there's, um, there's a few, there's some we'd go to for just like various regulatory questions where like we wanted to back up on a, on a point of view or something. And we wanted to get some email and writing from outside counsel. There are also, I mean, I think in particular of, of our capital markets outside counsel who's just like phenomenal. One of my favorite outside counsels to work with where it was like, I had worked with them enough to know that there were certain, like, if we're doing a simple amendment, like that's something we keep in-house and I'd be able to run with that and like take care of it. But if it were like the deep, deep work of like, we're going to amend and restate this hundred page agreement, that's going to outside counsel for the first swipe from having worked at law firms. I always try and be mindful of like, don't screw your outside counsel. So like, don't (laughs) send them the night before and be like, Hey, I need you tomorrow. If you do that, it's I don't know we we got in a really good groove of knowing how to work amicably with outside counsel and like you don't push them try and keep the the nitty-gritty like boring stuff that can be done quickly in-house or like if there's a, a quick research topic that's going to take you an hour tops like you might as well do that i think we kind of had a rule of thumb where like the crazier busier things got for us the more we sent stuff to outside counsel like i think that's yeah. a general truth of like if you're already working late and you're in-house like you're just going to send the, the issues to outside counsel at that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I always found that as I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a big in-house proponent. So like probably sometimes it, it, it comes off as me, like not appreciating outside counsel, but uh, I was one for a long time. And there are so many that are really, really good and better than I will ever be at so many different things. It's really helpful to use people for what they're good at and, and, and point them to these deep problems that that they're more equipped than me or you to, to solve. My goal was always to find those outside counsel, those lawyers that had A plus, A plus skills in certain things. And like being the generalist was kind of my job, being like really, really good and still able to understand my concerns and my businesses and then also just generally be likable. It was kind of like how I always saw outside counsel. And if you can find them, that can be uh, uh, really effective.
1: Yeah, I think your, your last point too is like you want an outside counsel that is going to give you the practical advice, right? Like that they're going to understand the business and know the nuances of how a clause is drafted. Like that's just such an invaluable invaluable goldmine. If you can get an outside counsel that's going to stop and like give you give you practical advice, I think lawyers can get wrapped up in like theoretical legal issues a bit. So it's a, it's a rare find.
0: Yeah, for sure. So if there are any young Lawyers listening to this, their you know fourth, fifth year associates, they're thinking of staying in big law or at their firms or wherever they are, or moving somewhere in house, moving to a technology company, moving to a startup. What's like the main thing from your perspective that they need to consider and think about?
1: I was going to say you should be familiar with the product, but that's also probably colored by the fact of product (laughs) council that I tend to view. But it's true; it's very true. (laughs) No, it's it's totally true. Like. I think there were, there were times where we weren't, we were drafting as an example, we were drafting something at blue line where we were like doing docs related to our main loan products, but we wanted to make sure it was framed in a way that didn't sweep up the PPP loans. Cause if you just refer to like, you know, a loan product, like that could include everything, but like, yeah you know, that's a government program. That's very different than like our normal product. It's those sorts of things. Like when I say product, I mean, like you know, just taking the time to look at like what are the different products that your customer has if you're working with a tech company can, can go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about content. You are a content
0: guy. We're, a couple, we're just a couple of content guys uh, <laughs> making some content. <laughs> let's talk about FinTech Law, TLDR. When did you start writing that? I, I only discovered this maybe five, six months ago. What made you want to start writing a newsletter? And then what made you actually start doing it?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's some fun nuanced answers in this. So good questions. So what made me want to start doing it, I was an editor of a newspaper in undergrad and I always enjoyed writing. And I think like once I had, it was like a similar where like newspaper it was just like total chaos. It was like a startup, but like they, they had been around for a while, but it had that like startup chaos feel of like if I have an idea, I can make it happen mm-hmm. or like I can just write about whatever I want to try and like get in readers like that that was like so much fun. And it was also with a really high caliber group of people who like like one of them works in the New York Times. Like there's they've all gone on to do really good things. And so I kind of had this bug and I've always, like at my first crypto law firm, I started like a crypto law blog briefly, but didn't really stick, stick with it. And I think to your second question of like, what led you to actually start it? I actually had this interesting process where I debated starting it for like four months. Yeah. I, I effectively <laughs> started it in like April role i think was the first one where i did actual like newsletter form um but i like debated it for three or four months because it was like if i do this like i'm committing to do it and part of that was talking to a buddy of mine who basically he he had been in teaching at a university and had been running this youtube channel in like the area that he teaches on on the side and is ended up making more money from that youtube channel that he'd been teaching so like he quit and now he's just like full-time running this youtube channel so i went to yeah. him and i was like what's your advice for content and he was like you just gotta like be consistent and commit and so like that was in the back of my head of if i'm gonna do something i need to commit to do it consistently for at least six months and that was kind of the mental block i made is like I, i'm gonna do this regularly every other week for six months and then like if uh, there's total crickets i'm like i'll stop but that's long enough that like i will push through the the kind of ugly beginning process but yeah i thought about it for three or four months finally started it in like april or so and it was like kind of like slow as i expected like so kind of trickle in but it's gotten more and more more and more subscribers as time goes on what 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 do you get out of it
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, why are you doing this <laughs>
1: i i ask myself that like, what all the time <laughs> no um I like I generally like writing like I think one of my favorite parts of in-house learning is just like writing emails or like explainers to people because I'm a huge fan of behavioral psychology and a lot of that comes through in writing like how are you framing things how are you communicating things to like reduce friction between what you're saying and the reader and so to me it's like this fun exercise where like it's these small decisions I could mention dfpi but I'm not writing for lawyers. I'm writing for non-lawyers. And so instead I say the California's financial regulator, because that's a lot more easy to understand than if I say DFPI. It's like those sorts of decisions that I just find like really interesting and keeps me coming back. One of the bigger kind of meta reasons that I wanted to start doing it and are the reasons I've kept doing it is writing forces you to stay up and actually learn what's happening. There's a great podcast between David Perel and, and Morgan Housel. If you've never heard Morgan Housel's book, Psychology of it's absolutely fantastic. Like probably one of my favorite books is short, fun, fun book, F- fantastic writers, both of them. And they kind of have this great rant about writing forces you to become an expert and you don't realize it. Yeah. And like, I'm increasingly having this experience at Lithic like, actually where like I'm on calls and like, I know I'm still like figuring out how this company is run, but like by virtue of running this newsletter, I'm forced to stay up with well, why is the the CFPB like going after these groups or whatever? I like have developed and maintained level of expertise in the area that I totally wasn't expecting. It's like, that's kind of fun. It's fun to like stay up on what's happening to like spot trends. I always enjoy these kind of conversations because it forces me to zoom out like, The newsletter is mostly kind of focused on like what's happened in the past two weeks, so that we can turn into like educational content by like constantly checking in every two weeks. I can also be like, wait a minute, I wrote about this a month and a half ago. Like, oh, here's a common theme of who this regulator cares about right now. So I don't know. There's there's a ton of benefits. I but sometimes I think I'm a little crazy for doing it. So I I appreciate (laughs) the question of why. (laughs) No, I mean I'm
0: I'm totally with you. The the learning and the education piece I think is really key. I think that in order to write anything once you start writing you want to make sure you are writing something interesting if not to your audience to yourself and that requires you to do some amount of research and if there's something that you want to write about and if you want to write about sofi getting a bank charter you might be like well i saw a story about some other bank getting a bank charter maybe there is a theme here you start to connect some dots all of a sudden you have something to write about maybe you look at some of the backstories around those things. And all of a sudden, just by writing about something, you become more knowledgeable than you were before, because it's much harder to clearly explain something. And as you mentioned, having to say, oh, the California financial regulator instead of the DF, you know, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> which the, the the name escaped me. Uh, but uh, if you want to explain something clearly and concisely you have to understand it well and in order to put that out there so I think it's a really good vector for learning and you know it especially going in-house you didn't do litigation but I did litigation and and the one thing you know litigation is often about brief writing and when you write a brief you have to do research and when you do research you have to read cases and you read cases you're gonna learn about a topic in the law and if you've dived into the deep nuance of something just to have one little citation at the end of one little sentence all of a sudden you know a lot about it and i and certainly my experience has been okay if i need to research something enough to put it to a theme and explain it to someone it's really helpful for learning so i i would think you have a lot of absorbed knowledge about around fintech law and and regulations and things like that just from having kept up with this
1: yeah i think that's totally right it's like the adage that the best way to learn is to teach. And if you're having to teach other people every other week about something, you're going to learn it pretty well and pretty fast. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I, I want to, and by way, I just want to comment. If if you want to subscribe to Reggie's newsletter, fintechtldr.substack.com, um, you can head there and subscribe. He's always got some excellent memes which I think is key to a good newsletter. Uh, I'm looking at the meme of a cat at a breakfast table, reading a newspaper in a suit. I should buy a bank, um, check that out. Trust me, it's funny even though, though <laughs> despite my uh, dry <laughs> explanation. So let me get a couple, uh, I'm, I'm gonna jump ahead here a bit for one of my segments, which is like takes. So let me get some takes from you. You write about this stuff. A, a hot topic is stablecoin regulation as I always have to take some things back to crypto eventually. (laughs) In Congress, we are getting multiple hearings on stablecoins. Stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that are tied in some fashion to a fiat currency. So what we might be talking about is there is USDC. One USDC is generally supposed to equal $1. And the advantage you get with that is that you are digitizing the dollar. You are enabling the features of digital assets of cryptocurrency in dollar form, but creating the stability of fiat currency for however much you value that stability, which is also another conversation. There's a continuing discussion around how should Congress or the president via executive order or or Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC via regulation, regulate stablecoins and crypto writ large, but let's stick with
1: stablecoins.
0: Reggie, what is your hot take on how stable coins uh, should be regulated and why?
1: <laughs> I'm hopeful that we can get some informed legislation. And I say legislation because the other alternative for stable coins is FSOC, which is basically a committee of like top financial regulators that can come in and say like, hey, this thing is a threat to our financial system. So we get to regulate it like however we want, like they just have a ton of power is kind of post great recession powers that were built to kind of protect against another similar event, And I'm hopeful that you probably want to end up with some kind of tiered system of like backed reserves, but not entirely dollar for dollar, because if you've dollar for dollar, they need to make revenue to function. And if they only can put their funds in US dollars, they can't typically like if you regulate them strictly like banks they're not going to be able to earn enough returns on their assets to maintain going operations like it's there's some kind of prudential regulation stuff around that that is like super boring and i'm not going go to do but uh, <laughs> all that is to say like I'm this is hopeful- the field you've chosen reggie so <laughs> yep i'm hopeful that we get regulation like some new legislation I'm hopeful because I think there's been a few instances in the past. If you've, pay, if you've been paying attention in the past like, six months, there have been a few instances of really big pieces of legislation popping up in Congress that would have affected crypto and crypto lobbyists just like strong arming the hell out of Congress and like getting what they want. And not necessarily in a bad way, like, like not just like Congress blindsided doing whatever crypto lobbyists want, but like crypto being able to come in as an industry and say, hey, hey there's like implications you, you guys aren't thinking about and you need to reword this legislation. Um, like there's a big one going on right now where this exact thing is happening. And so I'm like hopeful that there are enough smart people working in enough trade groups advocating for crypto that we could get some intelligent legislation that's thought through. So that that's my that's my take on stable coins.
0: Okay. I mean, like hoping for intelligent legislation is
1: <laughs> is is certainly I, I, I know. Don't know that
0: I would call it a hot take and it's I would say it's definitely wishful thinking. So maybe that is the uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe that's the the heat. Yeah, you know, uh, that topic is is super interesting to me. It's very much at the forefront. What you mentioned about regulating stablecoin issuers like banks and the backing of the reserves in order to maintain the peg of a stablecoin, and, and, and not, like you said, not to dwell on this too deeply, but probably the biggest topic is around, okay, is one stablecoin really worth $1? How so? Is it actually fully backed by reserves? What are those reserves? And the question being, how should we regulate that? There are certainly bills out there that, or, or suggestions out there that say, okay, well, we'll make it so only banks can issue stablecoins, and those banks will need to have regulators who confirm the one-to-one backing of the stablecoins issued, which is interesting because banks certainly don't need to have backed one-to-one your deposits, not even close. You know, obviously, these aren't the exact same thing, but uh, it's an interesting conversation. But we will put you down for your hot take is Congress actually does something useful. Um, <laughs> yep. So uh, we'll see. We will see if that plays out for them. Let's talk about Lithic. This is where you're working now. And I think you have a pretty unique role that I want to make sure that I get into. So can you tell us what Lithic is and why you joined?
1: Yeah. So Lithic is an issuer processor, which I'm sure is like just sounds absolutely fascinating to many listeners. (laughs) Uh, No, it's there. By analogy, Marketa is kind of like the biggest fintech issuer processor in this space. Issuer processors generally are the companies that kind of spin up or create cards, so debit cards, credit cards, charge cards. The kind of classic example that folks talk about is DoorDash, where DoorDash or, or other delivery companies, big piece of the original model was like, we're going to give our DoorDashers a card. Somebody's going to order food. They're going to go to pick it up. That food is going to cost $31. That card between this time and this time is going to authorize $32 on that card in this zip code. And so it's a way to kind of control, they have these like controls on like how money on that card can get spent when, where, etc. cetera. So it was a way to kind of cut down on fraud make sure that your drivers aren't also buying a handle of vodka when they're going to pick up deliveries. So that that's like the kind of quintessential use. There's some plenty of like so many other uses, which has been one of the fun parts of Lithic is it's a, it's effectively kind of an infrastructure company for anybody that wants to do anything spinning up cards. Um, And so by virtue of being an infrastructure company, like we work with other fintechs, which has been an interesting change. Like Bluevine was a fintech itself. And there's like the, often discuss like APIs all the way down posts by Packy McCormick that's like talks about how fintechs tend to be these like congregations of APIs that are stacked on top of each other and so like you get that with fintechs like Bluevine but Lithic is one of those APIs itself and so it's it's interesting like I've kind of switched from that like fintech to like a fintech infrastructure provider so yeah Lithic is, is focused, mainly on cards like, issuing cards but lots of lots of really cool stuff coming out this year and yeah so
0: to kind of like Distill that a card issuer is like when I have my credit card, the issuer. I have a Chase Chase Sapphire Reserve card because they offered a ton of rewards in like 2014. Chase is the issuing bank as a part of that card program. You know, it's a Visa card, Visa is the network, but Chase would be the issuer. There are other types of cards that aren't necessarily have the issue branding of a bank on it. For instance, if you have an airline miles card, it might be an American Airlines card. Um, Now, there is still like a bank underlying that, but you've got kind of like the American Airlines branding, and these are all part of the issuing relationship. What Lithic does and what other kind of more traditional players or older players like Marketa, these issuing processors, they enable you a business, for instance, a fintech like Bluevine, if Bluevine wanted to Create their own debit card program, so they could give debit cards to their users, to their business owners. They could say, "Hello, Lithic. Can we use your API to? And API is a, is a connection between two pieces of technology to very quickly and easily spin up cards that are issued by Bluevine. They're you know potentially have Bluevine branding, um, but really it's Lithic that is the processor behind this issuing it. And in your DoorDash example. Because Lithic is an API provider, you can really spin these cards up very quickly, almost instantly, put specific amounts on them uh, and have full control over them, as opposed to like Chase sending you the Sapphire card in the mail in three to five days.
1: Yep, that's a way, way better, more succinct uh, description. I'm just drafting off. I'm just drafting
0: off of you. So what's your role? You're, you're coming into this API company, you're serving FinTechs. What's your, what's your role? What do you do at Lithic?
1: Yeah. So part of the reason I joined was to keep up the newsletter. Great to see a company like Lithic that's big on educational content. Cause I think that's super important. Like there's so many fascinating use cases that you could use Lithic's API for, but folks have to know about it first, right? Like you have to teach right. them what can be done, like how, how the right. pipes work and everything. And so part of that too is also what's the regulatory environment? Like what are the things you can do given regulations? And that's kind of what the FinTech TL, fintech Law TLDR newsletter about, is about is like taking more recent events and using them as an opportunity to educate. And so part of me joining lithic was that's something that I'm going to keep up doing effectively is like part of my job um, to kind of help build lithics place as like an educational content hub is but like the my actual like lawyer job there then is product counsel, which is a kind of interesting role that every time i talk to a lawyer who's at a law firm they have absolutely no idea what product council is <laughs> uh, so it's kind of like the product teams sit as a as the hub in a wheel where like all the spokes go out to different different teams the product teams kind of build the next product or the next features of the products, or deal with whatever bugs that need to be fixed in existing stuff. It often requires a team that kind of interacts with like customer support and partnerships and marketing, because all these teams like have input on, on where product is going, or what can be done with the product. So product counsel is effectively a lawyer that kind of pairs up with that product team to help figure out like, hey, we want to roll out this new feature. Are there regulations that restrict how we do it? What like legal requirements do we have? Like, our disclosures and disclaimers up to par, those, those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, so uh, being a, a product counsel for a product that eventually and potentially through other parties like gets in the hands of consumers, can you give an example of how the work you're doing, whether it's regulatory, whether it's around disclosures or risks, makes its mark on Lithic's product or how, it, how its product ends up? in the lives of your regular person.
1: Yeah, I think a big part of it is product team coming and saying, hey, we want to do X. That might involve us doing our own research, might talk to outside counsel, kind of get guidance on like, what are the rules about X? And then looking at it and kind of poking around and saying like, well, you can open up regs and you can look at provisions that other companies might not use and kind of crack open new doors with tech. And I think like, that's probably, that's probably a good way to think about it is like, we try to enable the businesses growth and plans and like features by kind of being more creative and what can be done, which again, like as a lawyer, you want to be responsible and you want to like take into account risks and make sure you're being compliant. But there's also so many times where like, why do we do things this way? Well, because the banking industry has always done it that way. And then you look at the actual law and the regulations, like actually, no, that's not, you don't need to do it that way. Uh, that's a, a fairly regular, like in-house fintech uh, yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. So it seems like
0: your product council role really is well aligned with your kind of content creator role, because as you mentioned, you are creating content that is around regulations and around the product and saying, this is how, hello, businesses who are Olympics customers, this is how you can use our product. Here's an interesting way that you can use our product or a way that that can help drive your business or move it forward. And here's a set of regulations that show that you can do it. At the same time, you probably had that same conversation with your product team and the people building the product itself saying, this is a way that we can help our customers, businesses who want to issue cards. If we can implement this, either you're telling them or they're asking you either way. And if we can implement this in our documentation, for how people are going to use our product. And I can make this content around informing folks how they can use our product, both from a regulatory and a product perspective. That helps our customers make money. That helps us make money. And that helps uh, kind of make our product stand out from other aspects of, of, of other card issuers or other people in the space.
1: Yep. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good good summary. And I'll caveat it by saying that like, the newsletter is generally not going to be like, total like lithic promo like click here everywhere uh, it's going to be and they've been like great about making sure that that's that's kind of everyone's intention with me joining is it like it'll still be this kind of like generally like i read about crypto i read about stable coins like right. they're they're not doing lithic is not about to issue a stable coin but like i just find that interesting it's important in Fedex. so like for for folks who are interested in subscribing it's much broader it's not just going to be like lithic ads but there will be i'm i'm psyched like we've talked about doing more like targeted lithic like posts and stuff that would be kind of more along the lines of like, Hey, here are these things specific to our products and like regulations you might want to be aware of uh, as you're, as you're looking to be an entrepreneur and start your own FinTech or whatever.
0: Yeah. And maybe I should say that
1: the messages that you are talking
0: about with internally are, are, are different than the ones you're putting out in the newsletter, which are more focused on news and current events and regulation, but they serve a similar purpose of in the newsletter you are, Going through regulations, talking about what's happened, talking about Congress, um, talking about the CFPB's enforcement. These are all like the types of things that you would want to also do internally as a counsel if those things reflected on your product internally, and you had to keep up with them. Like if there's a new privacy law that came down, you might write about it in the newsletter and talk about it with your product team. Yep, yep. I think like the interesting aspect of this is like you are being kind of paid to continue this content creation. How did this kind of become a part of you joining Lithic? And what's from the company's perspective, like, what are they hoping to get out of that if you can speak for them?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think like what led to it happening is kind of two things. Like One, the fact I was doing it from the get-go. One of the MBA classes I took in law school was marketing. And I love the professor's definition of marketing, which is basically like, it's communicating the value you have to the people who might want it. And so like I've always thought about that, like lawyers are generally terrible at marketing because they don't realize that like, you have to communicate. You have to communicate your value. Otherwise nobody's going to know. Um, and so I kind of also viewed the, the newsletter as like a way to build like my own presence and like build a network, meet great folks like you through it. And so like, there's kind of that aspect of, well, I was like putting myself out there. And I think that's, just, that's an important thing that lawyers don't do enough because we're all trained to be like pessimistic risk averse people. <laughs> um, so y'all, if lawyers listening, you should go like, do something to push yourself. So I think there's that. And I also think the other aspect is like, lithic think it's just like, I think smartly investing in good content. Like they're, they've hired some great folks on kind of the content marketing team lately that are, are looking to really kind of build some really like useful like it's all like customer centric. Like, how can we make this like easier for, for folks and more educational? So I think it was like kind of just aligned interest there. Then in terms of how the company's thinking about using it, I'm in week three. So like still pretty early, but we have had some fun conversations about something that was framed as Reggie's version of Better Call Saw, like a three-minute segment of like some, you know, some like legal regulatory take on things that have happened recently or that apply to Lithics products or something like that. So we've got some ideas like that. I think. The newsletter will probably stay similar to what it is, but we'll probably like spin up some parallel stuff, like whether it be short, short takes, recorded audio, or like maybe some new like sections in the newsletter. We'll see. Reggie's version of Better Call Saul. I know, uh, I know. With, I with heard- as
0: much g- Gus Fring or less, or like <laughs> <laughs> what, what,
1: what, what, are, what are we talking here? I know, I heard that just like burst out laughing. <laughs> it's like, I gotta well, do
0: it now. <laughs> it's, a, it's an excellent segue into... My final segment: Life is a movie. You, Reggie Young, are a legal consultant or a script doctor on a movie or show being made in 2022, because it's right in your wheelhouse. What's the plot of this movie? The world is your oyster. Pitch us.
1: Okay, so we're gonna do like, like a Silicon Valley lawyer in-house version of The Office, the legal team at like Juicero in the early days. (laughs) Now you and like you're singing, you're speaking my language right now. And (laughs) like. Michael Scott hears that like every company will become a fintech company. So we have to become a fintech company. And so they try and like, you know, add like payments to the juicero or something. And then it turns out they become like a magnet for like money laundering from Russia. And then like, they all get like kidnapped, like the legal team gets kidnapped and that there's plot goes from there.
0: This is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, I thought you were going to say a a legal team Silicon Valley version of Silicon Valley, which is also an excellent show, but I like having a Michael Scott character who quotes Angela strange and other like (laughs) VC like threads um, who probably just speaks in threads as, as everyone on VC Twitter is, is, is wont to do. Let's workshop it. Let's workshop it. I like it. it. Any
1: lasting uh, comments or tips or tidbits for our audience? I mean, I'm a huge proponent of like, what well, we, well, we hit a second ago, of, like lawyers are, are risk averse pessimists, but like, that's also a great, I think a lot of people are overly rosy eyed. And so like, it can be a superpower if you can get past that, uh, that mental block that a lot of lawyers have of the like voice of doubt in your head, because we spend our whole day with that voice of doubt. So, you know, for lawyers out there who are hesitating to uh, pull the trigger on something, you should just, just go do it.
0: Kill the voice in your head, break out of your shell. Advice from uh, uh, Reginald C. Young, but it is not legal advice. I think it was good advice and I think it was a great episode of the If Then podcast. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Audience, if you want to get in contact with Reggie, uh, Reggie, how can they uh, contact you or or take a look at your newsletter or what should people do?
1: Yeah, uh, best place is uh, Twitter, Reggie C. Young. Uh, otherwise, the newsletters newsletter is
0: wonderful if then community we will see you next time reggie thanks for joining us
1: thanks for having me.